0: Hello. So let me welcome you here on behalf of Charles Small, uh, who I think you will understand very well being on the West Coast, was not easily able to make it here today, and really asks um, asks to be excused. He is the founder and the director of ISCAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, and I hope I don't have to go into any uh, detail about this wonderful new organization because I think that you all have on your chairs the information. Um, my name is Ruth Weiss. I am a professor here of um, Yiddish, Yiddish literature, comparative literature in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, if you can believe it. Um, you may well be scratching your heads and wondering what Yiddish literature is doing in a department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. But there is not always logic to such things. Uh, But that is where Jewish Studies is uh, located. Um, In any case, it is a great pleasure today and a tremendous uh, privilege to have Thomas Hochmann uh, come here and uh, be our speaker in this ISGAP Harvard Law series. Um, He is associate professor of public law at the University of Rheim, Champagne-Ardennes in France, and he is also associate member Perelman uh, Center for Legal Philosophy in Brussels. He received his master's degree in public comparative law from the University of Paris at Panthéon-Sorbonne in 2004, and he received his PhD there, his doctorate there, writing a thesis on Holocaust denial and freedom of speech in comparative law. Um, This uh, dissertation is going to be published next year, and it won the René Cassin Prize in Human Rights Law. And um, so uh, the title of his talk today is Holocaust Denial and Freedom of Speech After the United States versus Alvarez. And uh, we look forward to a very interesting talk. And I think at the end, I will also make some announcements about the future talks in this series. Thank you very much for being our guest here today. Please.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Weiss. Uh, I'd like to thank very much also the ISCAP. I'm really honored and really proud to be here. today so my talk as is entitled holocaust denial and free speech after united states versus alvarez united states versus alvarez as you may know is a recent case that was decided by the u.s supreme court uh, this year in june and as all of you know free free speech, freedom of speech, is more broadly protected here in the United States than in Europe or than in the, the rest of the world. Except maybe the case of obscene or pornographic speech, uh, most words that can lead to a sentence in Europe can be freely expressed in the United States. For most people, therefore, there is absolutely no doubt no doubt that Holocaust denial, the, the statement that the Holocaust never happened, that uh, no Jew was ever killed in a gas chamber during World War II, this statement, for most people, as abhorrent as it may be, cannot be prohibited in the United States, is protected by the First Amendment. For the specialists of freedom of speech, and I don't have the pretension of calling me that, but also for the main American legal scholars, and the the main American free speech scholars, there was a doubt concerning the legal status of Holocaust denial. I shall uh, immediately introduce a, a distinction. I am dealing here with Holocaust denial, not with what we often call hate speech. I am dealing with the particular issue that is raised by Holocaust denial. Not all legal systems, not all countries agree on the legal answer to hate speech. But the issue at hand is at least clear. Can hateful utterances targeting a group of people be the object of a specific limit to freedom of expression? Can freedom of expression be limited when its use harms other people, or when it tends to lead toward violence, or when it threatens democracy? In a country whose constitution answers these questions positively, affirmatively, forbidding Holocaust denial is not problematic if this expression is seen as being insulting to the Jews, or as one expression that reads National Socialism of its crimes. And Holocaust denial can easily be seen as a form of hate speech if it explicitly attacks Jews, if the denier argues, for instance, that Jews invented the hoax of the Holocaust to make money. I shall call this kind of expression qualified Holocaust denial, so um, a form of expression that explicitly attacks a group of individuals. Such expression, qualified Holocaust denial, can easily be treated as hate speech. Now, a specific question is raised by what I would call bare Holocaust denial. With bare Holocaust denial, no explicit accusation is is made against a group of persons. Denial of the crime stands alone. For example, the statement that no gas chamber was used to kill human beings during World War II this statement is bare holocaust denial. No one is explicitly attacked by this expression. So this kind of expression, bare holocaust denial, does not involve overt, explicit hate speech. It raises a different problem from the classic and well-documented uh, hate speech regulation issue. Bear Holocaust denial has a particular feature. It's a false statement of fact. So the question is, are false statements of fact protected by the First Amendment? Is such an expression protected by the First Amendment? Of course, the the spirits, the philosophy, the, the big Spirit of American free speech conception seems to foreclose any possibility of restricting bare holocaust denial. I would like to show however that the issue was far from settled until a recent case decided by the US Supreme Court this year, the case of United States versus Alvarez. So I will organize my my short presentation in three parts. I will present the situation before United States versus Alvarez. Then I will say a few words about the case, about United States versus Alvarez, who was decided in June 2012. And finally, I will show that Alvarez, this case, teaches us some elements, some new knowledge concerning the legal status of Holocaust denial in the United States. So to begin with, Holocaust denial and free speech before Alvarez. So the American conception of freedom of speech is well known and I will not have uh, the the nerve, the pretension to, to explain it to you. Let me just recall some famous quotes that summarizes the main main ideas. First, let me quote John Stuart Mill, and this will be, I'm sure, the first time that you hear John Stuart Mill speaking with such a tragic uh, French accent. (laughs) um, So I quote, the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity, as well as the existing generation, Those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. If the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost a greater benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. So that's John Stuart Mill in his famous book on liberty. And that's an important quote because we will see that it plays a role in United States versus Alvarez. So we will come back on this um, in a moment. As you know, the Supreme Court start, uh, started building, started to build in 1919 a jurisprudence very protecting of expression, which is largely inspired by this philosophy from John Stuart Mill. And more than in the text of the First Amendment, I think American free speech conception is expressed by Oliver Wendell Holmes in his famous dissent in Abrams versus United States, a case decided in 1919. The best test of truth, wrote Holmes, the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. So this idea, the idea that truth will prevail over falsity, is an essential feature of American free speech doctrine of the the traditional discourse surrounding surrounding free speech in the United States. So, concerning Holocaust denial, the game seems over. How could a legal prohibition of Holocaust denial be justified in such a system? The remedy for false speech, it seems, is only true speech, not a legal restriction. However, until Alvarez, until this case decided this year, until Alvarez, adapt remained. Adapt remained because the free market is a free market of ideas, of ideas, not of facts, not of statements of facts. Neither the, the classic authors that have inspired the Supreme Court, nor the court itself, have ever thought of statements of facts when they defended the free exchange of ideas. They thought only about opinions, about ideas, not about facts. John Stuart Mill, for instance, was dealing with incitement to tyrannicide, Mm -hmm. with immoral doctrines, or with religious opinions. To be sure he writes in on Liberty in his book he writes that quote, "If even the Newtonian philosophy were not permitted to be questioned, mankind could not feel as complete assurance of its truth as they now do unquote. but John Stuart Mill really seems to distinguish between statements of fact and opinions and his developments his Thinking on the necessity to protect every opinion, every point of view, deals only with the latter, with, state, with expression of opinions, not with expression statements of fact. On a subject like mathematics, he writes, John Stuart Mill, there is nothing at all to be said on the wrong side of the question. The peculiarity of the evidence of mathematical truth is that all the argument is on one side. There are no objections and no answers to objections. But on every subject on which difference of opinion is possible, the truth depends on a balance to be struck between two sets of conflicting reasons, So once again, free debate is for opinions, not for facts. In an essay that he published before his famous book on liberty, John Stuart Mill was very clear. He was unambiguous. I quote him once again. It must be admitted that the case of facts and that of opinion are not precisely similar. False opinions must be tolerated for the sake of the true since it is impossible to draw any line by which true and false opinions can be separated from one another. There is no corresponding reason for permitting the publication of false statements of facts. The truth or falsehood of an alleged fact is matter not of opinion but of evidence. And may be safely left to be decided by those on whom the business of deciding upon evidence is in other cases (coughs) devolves. So, his idea, John Stuart Mill's idea in this essay, was that uh, libel defamation could be sentenced if it was based on false facts. He he also thought that. Statements could be forbidden when they revealed strictly private facts, but that's not important for us uh, now. So it seems that John Stuart Mill, America's free speech hero, did not think that false statements of facts deserved any protection. And the same seems true of Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis, whose opinions are constantly quoted when one wants to support the broad protection of freedom of expression. Of course, wrote Holmes in his famous dissent in Abrams, where he introduced the idea of the free market of ideas, of course, I am speaking only of expression of opinions. He was not dealing with statement of facts. So it's not so obvious that false statements of facts shall enjoy the the same protection as the expression of opinion does. Furthermore, in, in several cases, the Supreme Court seemed to exclude false statements of fact from the coverage, from the scope of the First Amendment. The Supreme Court seemed to say false statements of fact are not protected, pro- protected at all by the First Amendment. Actually, one of the main justifications of freedom of speech is indeed the discovery of truth. Another is the democratic formation of public opinion. These goals seem hampered by false statements of facts. There is no constitutional value in false statements of facts, explained the Supreme Court in 1974 in a sentence that is very often quoted. There is no constitutional value in false statements of facts. Neither the intentional lie nor the careless error Materially advances society's interest in an inhibited, robust, and wide-open debate on public issue. There is no constitutional value in false statements of fact. And in the famous Hustler versus Falwell case, the Supreme Court explained that false statements of fact are particularly valueless. They interfere with the truth-seeking function of the marketplace of ideas. So is there absolutely no protection for false statements of fact in the United States? <coughs> is Holocaust denial outside the reach of the First Amendment? Not exactly. Not exactly, because the Supreme Court said that false statements of facts have no value for, in, in themselves. but. The Supreme Court organized a strategic protection for false statements of fact. I quote the court. Although the erroneous statement of fact is not worthy of constitutional protection, it is nevertheless inevitable in free debate. That's the same case where the court said there is no constitutional value in false statements of fact. The court said immediately after, they are nevertheless inevitable in a free debate. So in order to safeguard, to protect the breathing space necessary for free speech to survive, false statements are protected to some extent. The idea is that if you don't protect if you don't protect at all false statements of fact, then speech that matters, speech that is worthy of protection, will be chilled, will be deterred. So false statements of fact enjoy protection not not for their own sake, but in order to avoid to deter speech that is worthy of protection. If a speaker had to fear a sanction, a sentence, every time he might say something that is not accurate, speech that matters would be deterred. So the court say in the words of the court, the First Amendment requires that we protect some falsehood in order to protect speech that matters. Okay, that's the idea of the breathing space. We, 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 don't, we protect some speech that has no value in order that speech that has some value can be freely expressed to let some breathing space to this speech. Therefore, in several cases, the Supreme Court has authorized the restriction of false statements but only only when additional conditions were satisfied first the speech the false statement of fact must be harmful and second the speaker must be aware that the speech is false he must be aware of the falsity or, or act with uh, really in a careless way as to whether it is true or not so that what's the court calls actual malice the speaker must know must be aware that what he said is not true so i'm sorry i had to recall uh, these things that you might already be aware of but i had to do it in order to go uh, a bit further the problem is that the supreme court never never said that every false statement of facts may be restricted when it is harmful and when it is made with actual malice, with awareness of its falsity. The court offered such a solution, but only for limited class of speeches, for the libel of a public figure, for the intentional infliction of emotional distress to a public figure, or for the false light, which is a tort, uh, kind of invasion uh, to privacy invasion of privacy. But the Supreme Court never expressed a general rule about false statements of facts. So the case of Holocaust denial was not settled. Once again, according to free speech principles, to what some people call free speech First Amendment rhetoric, according to To the classical American conception of freedom of speech, it seemed quite impossible to imagine someone being sentenced because he denied the Holocaust. But from the point of view of the law, a doubt remained. And this year, in 2012, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to address more in details the issue raised by false statements of facts. So that my, that's my second point, Alvarez versus United States. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm quite sure that you already know the story of Mr. Alvarez or that you heard of it. But let me recall it quickly. Mr. Alvarez was a pathologic liar. He claimed that he played hockey for the Detroit Red Wings he said he was married with a Mexican model. And one day he explained he had received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Thank you so much, madam. <clears throat> one day he explained he had been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. For this last lie, he was sentenced on the basis of a federal statute adopted in 2005 the Stolen Valor Act, which forbade to falsely represent oneself to have been awarded any decoration or medal authorized by Congress for the armed forces of the United States. So Mr. Alvarez was sentenced on the basis of this statute. He appealed his conviction, and the case went to the Supreme Court. The speech targeted by this statute has a common feature with Holocaust denial. It's a false statement of fact. So what did the court say? One possibility for the court was the following. False statements of facts have no value in themselves. They they do not deserve protection for their own sake. They deserve protection only when This protection is needed to avoid chilling speech that matters. That's the breathing space theory. In the case of claiming that one has been awarded the the, medal uh, for his service in the United States uh, forces, it seems that no speech that matters is deterred, is chilled. So could the court simply rule that the Stolen Valor Act raised no difficulty at all from the point of view of the First Amendment? That was approximately the opinion of Justice Alito, in his opinion, joined by Justices Scalia and Thomas. False statements of fact merit no First Amendment protection in their own right, Alito explained. There exists only an instrumental protection to protect speech that falls within the First Amendment scope. So that's our breathing space theory. But since the Stolen Valor Act presents no risk at all that valuable speech will be suppressed, it is perfectly compatible with the First Amendment. So, a false statement of fact can be prohibited if it does not deter valuable speech. So the question for us is, does Holocaust denial, or does the prohibition of Holocaust denial dissuade speech that matters? Alito says something more about that, and I will arrive there in a few minutes. But first, I have to to precise that Alito's opinion is a dissenting opinion. The majority of the Supreme Court justices have a different appreciation of the issue raised by the stolen Valor Act, permitting the government to decree this speech to be a criminal offense four judges explained in the case, permitting the government to decree this speech to be a criminal offense, would endorse government authority to compile a list of subjects about which false statements are punishable. And for those judges, this would not be acceptable. False statements of facts are not at the mercy of the government. The government cannot target falsity and nothing more, just forbid something because it is false. The government may not do that, those judges explain. To be permitted by the First Amendment, a restriction needs something more. It should focus on false statements used to gain a material advantage or on false statements that cause a harm. And the lawmaker must be able to prove that the speech does cause the harm. The harm, say the judges, must be directly caused by the false statement. The government cannot, once again, target only falsity and nothing more. It must, it must make sure that this statement cause, causes a harm. Moreover those judges explain, there must be no alternative, mildest way to avoid this harm. (laughs) And for two other judges, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, these two other justices adopt a, a similar view. False statements of fact are punishable only when they are harmful. Therefore, a statute must require such a condition. A statute cannot forbid false statements simplicitaires. It must demand the proof of an injury, of of an harm. So, Breyer and Kagan explain, the Stolen Valor Act is too broad. It may be applied to situations where no risk of harm exists, such as, and and here uh, Justice Breyer taught me a, a new word. The, the Stolen Valor Act is too broad because it can be applied to a barstool braggadocio. So I guess barstool braggadocio is when someone is drunk in a bar and explain a lot of stuff to, to catch the attention, right? Yeah, this word does exist, right? Yeah. yeah? <laughs> OK. Um, so Justice Breyer explained the Stolen Valor Act is unconstitutional. And it would be acceptable only if, if and I quote uh, the judge, only if it insisted upon showing that the false statement caused specific harm, or if it focused its coverage on lies most likely to be harmful, or on contexts where such lies are most likely to cause harm. This seems, maybe, to cover Holocaust denial. Maybe is Holocaust denial more harmful to more people than what Mr. Alvarez said? So to sum up, a few judges think that false statements of fact deserve absolutely no protection except a strategic protection, whereas most judges, think false statements of fact can be restricted only when they cause harm. So what lesson can one uh, draw concerning Holocaust denial? A clear and unsurprising one prohibiting Holocaust denial would be ruled unconstitutional in the United States. And that's my third and last part, Holocaust denial after Alvarez. All nine justices, all nine members of the Supreme Court seem to agree on one point. The First Amendment does not permit to punish bare Holocaust denial. They do not say it explicitly, but that's a clear inference, implication of the decision. Four members of the court, as I said, insist that the government, If it wishes to restrict a false statement, the government must establish that there is no milder way to prevent the alleged harm. And they also think that a lie can be overcome by counter-speech, the remedy for speech that is false, they explain is not legal, prohibition is speech that is true. The remedy for, false, for speech that is false is speech that is true, not a legal prohibition. And the five other judges, the two conquering justices and the three dissenters, these five judges explain more directly that speech dealing with history is protected, even when it is false. Both opinions, the concurring opinion, the dissenting opinion, both opinions base their analysis on the breathing space argument, the idea that false statements should be protected when their prohibition risks to deter speech that matters. There are broad areas, Justice Alito explains, in which any attempt by the state to penalize false speech would present a grave and unacceptable danger of suppressing truthful speech. Laws restricting false statements about philosophy, religion, history, the social sciences, the arts, and other matters of public concern would present such a threat. That's Justice Alito's dissenting opinion, and in his concurring opinion, Justice Breyer quotes this passage of the dissent and agrees with it. So the majority of the court agrees that Holocaust denial is covered by the First Amendment, not for its own sake, but because forbidding it would chill historical inquiry. Actually, during uh, the oral argument before the court, the government seemed to share the same idea Justice Ginsburg explicitly asked the government whether its position in favor of the Stolen Valor Act would permit to restrict Holocaust denial. And the government's answer was a bit embarrassed and not very clear. But it mentioned that the breathing space uh, analysis could could, could could, could bar such a restriction. So, the position of the court, to sum up, is that even if false statements dealing with history have no value, are not worthy of protection, they nevertheless enjoy First Amendment protection. Their protection avoids any chilling effect, avoid to deter speech that is worthy of protection. But, they add something more. They add that false historical statements are not completely valueless. False statements, they say, and I, I, quote the, the, I quote Justice Alito, false statements brings about the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. And here, Alito, Uh, of course, quotes a sentence that we quoted before, the sentence where John Stuart Mill, as we have seen, was dealing with opinions, not with statements of fact. According to Justice Alito, and I quote once again Justice Alito, even when there is a wide scholarly consensus concerning a particular matter, let's say the existence of the Holocaust, even where there is a wide scholarly consensus concerning a particular matter, the truth is served by allowing that consensus to be challenged without fear of reprisal. So the idea, as explained in an amicus brief, that obviously convinced Justice Alito, the, the three dissenters and the two concurring justices, so the majority of the court, The idea, as explained in this amicus brief that was filled by Professor James Weinstein from Arizona State University and Professor Eugene Volog from UCLA, the idea is the following, and I quote the brief, if factual criticism of historical or scientific theory were banned, confidence in the consensus view would then be less justified. First we could not know whether the continued consensus stems from scholars not being exposed to outsider challenges, rather than from its continued scholarly acceptance despite the challenges. Second, we could not know whether the continued consensus is more apparent than real, because scholars who do find themselves having doubts and deterred are deterred from expressing them scholars who do find themselves having doubts are deterred from expressing them. And so the court seems seems to endorse these ideas and to exclude any prohibition of Holocaust denial. As you may know, um, several European countries have chosen a different path. But one should be aware that there is not really a consensus on criminalizing Holocaust denial in Europe. Most Europeans agree that hate speech should be prohibited. But there is a sharp debate, especially in France, concerning the specific criminalization of Holocaust denial or of denial of other crimes against humanity. This year, in 2012, there was in France a lively discussion concerning the prohibition of the denial of the Armenian Genocide. So Holocaust denial is already forbidden in France. And there was a, a new law that was passed by the Parliament to forbid the denial of the Armenian Genocide. And there was a huge debate about this new law. And the argument adopted here by the American Supreme Court The idea that the state should not be the arbiter of truth, that the state should not be the empire of historical controversies, even when truth is established, this argument is often heard in France, too. The the French controversy surrounding the prohibition of the denial of the Armenian genocide was closed by a decision of the French Constitutional Council, Conseil Constitutionnel, which is our constitutional court. But actually, it's not really a court. And one big defect of the Constitutional Council is that it barely justifies its decisions. For this reason, it is not really easy to compare the French Constitutional Council's decision with the Supreme Court's opinion in Alvarez. Now, the the Constitutional Council ruled that the the criminalization of the denial of the Armenian genocide was an unconstitutional limit to freedom of expression. And some people, some French scholars, think that this decision was based on a view similar to the one a majority of Supreme Court's members endorsed in the United States versus Alvarez. The state may not intervene in historical controversies, it may not forbid speech dealing with history, even false speech. But, actually, this argument does not appear in the decision of the French Constitutional Council because, once again, the French Constitutional Council does not give its reasons. I, if Maybe I can tell you a bit more on the decision during the discussion if we have time and if you have an uh, interest in that. Um, to conclude... Um, well, no, first, I'd like to say that I, I'm not sure that I agree with the view of the Supreme Court that the certainty that the Holocaust happened would decrease if Holocaust denial was forbidden. So I, I apply to, to, to the Holocaust what the Court said on statements of fact generally, right? The, the Supreme Court, the judicial opinions, do not explicitly mention the, holo- the, the Holocaust or Holocaust denial. I'm not sure that this argument is persuasive, but I truly appreciate that the Supreme Court justifies its opinions. The Supreme Court gives its reasons. It's a pity that the French Constitutional Council does not do that. So let me conclude. Um, What did I tell you today? Uh, That before Alvarez, one could already think that the prohibition of Holocaust denial was not permitted in the United States, was not permitted by the First Amendment. The, the philosophy of the First Amendment pointed heavily in, in this direction. But for the readers of the Supreme Court's decision, a doubt could remain. And what did United States versus Alvarez? Uh, do uh, Alvarez blew this tiny doubt away? Holocaust denial is false and it might be harmful but this, this does not justify to forbid it in the United States and I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you Thank you, thank you very much I'm sure
0: that there must be some <coughs> questions um, please. Is, is Holocaust
1: denial crime in all the countries of Europe? Uh, no, not in all the country, but in some of them. So it is forbidden. It is criminalized in France, in Germany, in Austria. Not in Spain. Not in Italy. Not in the United Kingdom. In Switzerland, yes. So I would say no, n- not in all of them. Maybe not in the majority of them, but in quite a lot of them. And there is this new um european not law but a european decision if you want who says that the european countries shall forbid a holocaust denial or denial of crimes against humanities but only what i called at the beginning qualified denial so uh, the speeches the utterances that uh, deny a crime, and then exp- that explicitly uh, insult some people or that incite toward violence or stuff like this. Um, thank you. That's, uh, that was extremely uh, well found. I'm
2: not you know, in law or anything, but I know quite a bit about the Armenian genocide situation. So I have two questions. Um, one is, during these discussions, do legal minds uh, discuss how they describe fact. Um, that's one question, and the other is, um, what, can you tell us more about what the decision was about the Armenian genocide in that Constitutional Council that you kind of left vain? And I, I would just love to know, because I don't know
1: enough about. Yeah. Uh, what the, the Constitutional Council did is the, the following. Actually, the, this new statute, that was adopted in January 2012, forbade to deny the existence of a genocide recognized by a law. And actually, the only genocide recognized by a law in France is the Armenian genocide. There is a law that states uh, France recognized the Armenian genocide. And so some members of the parliament appealed to the Constitutional Council, and the council struck down the the law said it was uh, unconstitutional and how did he do that he, he, it is quite uh, to my mind he he made a, a, a contradictory decision he said first that a law has to be normative what he calls normative that means that a law must forbids must uh, requires or must authorize something but a law cannot just recognize a crime okay it must say you must do that you I'm not allowed to do that, or you so may do that. It's like okay. action
2: thing? Like it has to say you have to do something, right?
1: Yeah, it was, yeah. And therefore, say the, the Constitutional Council, a law that merely recognizes a genocide is not normative, so it's unconstitutional. And therefore, the 2012 law is unconstitutional. Now, the problem is that the 2012 uh, law was normative because it forbade to say that the the Armenian genocide never happened and if you if you uh, under this law if you do that you're sentenced so it was normative so the decision of the constitutional council is actually two paragraph long and it's contradictory so it was a huge disappointment for all the people who who were interested in the question for proponents of the law but also for people who did not agree with the statute because there was a huge discussion and a lot of legal arguments uh, exchanged and all we got is a two is two poorly argued paragraphs that uh, does not mean much and that are quite contradictory so that was not a great uh, work uh, from the constitutional council I guess, and I think I did not get very well your first question. I'm sorry.
2: I'm trying to understand because, you know, I'm not an academic or a legal scholar, but I come from, like, journalism. So, I mean, for us, it's like, in order to say something, you have to get at least two sources, and then you can kind of, you know, discuss that after that. Like, yeah. you have to check your sources. Well, for legal matters, when you say false statement of a fact, yeah, that fact,
1: how do people decide what is that fact okay, so there are two things either uh, when you have a case before a tribunal, a, a judge will decide if something is true or false, which does not mean that it is absolutely uh, true or false that uh, a judge never makes mistake, but on a legal point of view, that will be true or false okay and another there is another legal Technique, I don't know. It's the common knowledge, you know. So the judges uh, often say the Holocaust. We say it's common knowledge. So we will not start an historical inquiry in court to uh, establish those facts. It's uh, common knowledge, so we take it as true. That's what judges do. Something they do it for gravity. If I drop this pen, it will fall. That's common knowledge. I don't have to prove it. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Is there any reference uh, in the Charter of the EU, the European Union, that would um, touch upon genocide or Holocaust denial? uh, Because it sort of transcends the individual national definitions. How is that represented in the UN, at the
1: EU? EU? Uh, So in European law, we have now um, the European uh, Human Rights uh, Charter, right? Charter? And no, there's nothing about Holocaust denial in it. There is a guarantee of freedom of speech and also the possibility to restrict this freedom of speech when speech provokes some harm or is dangerous, right? So we don't have, like, in the United States, a negative sentence that say Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of speech. We have two sentences. Freedom of speech is protected, but the law may restrict it in such and such and such cases. So, in the the European Court on Human Rights, so which is the court dealing with the Council of Europe, some something bigger than the European Union, judged, judged, ruled that Holocaust denial can be forbidden because it goes. Against the ideas of peace and democracy that are the basis of the of post war europe that's the idea sure a little
0: bit outside the realm of the law, but interestingly enough, one that arose in france uh, jean paul Sartre's book, which he wrote based on his experience during the war anti semite and jew or uh, That I forgotten the French title. Reflexion uh, sur
1: la question juive. Oh, comme, uh, uh,
0: sur la question juive. Uh, exactement. Um, what he begins with, interestingly enough, is that uh, antisemitism is not an opinion. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting. So it, it cannot, I don't know how this can be translated into law, but I found uh, this to be one of the most profound insights. Uh, because it is always regarded as an opinion, right? Mm-hmm. So that you can one side and the other side. But in his uh, opening, he says he does not regard it as an opinion, and he bases this, of course, on his psychological interpretation of it. But I wonder if there is any uh, parallel to this in, in legal discourse. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a statement that is often quoted. Um to justify restrictions to freedom of speech, uh, people would say antisemitism or racism uh, is not an opinion; it's a crime. That the idea. I think that I, I see the idea, and I, of course I agree with that. I, I think, on a legal point of view, um, an opinion or any expression is a crime when it's forbidden by a, a law, when it's criminalized by the, the parliament. Right. So there is nothing on strict legal point of view. There is no opinion that, that is, uh, in its own sake, a crime, that, that is naturally a crime. Uh, any expression can be a crime if the lawmaker decided to make it a crime. So that's the idea. So in, in French law, anti-Semitism is a crime. Yeah.
0: The classic limitation on freedom of speech is when you're not allowed to yell, fire, in a crowded auditorium. Yeah. yeah. Because it does harm.
2: In sight. Yeah. yeah. Harm. Um, um, can one argue that um, a- anti-denying um, the Holocaust should be banned if it causes emotional harm to say Holocaust survivors? Because let's say they hear the Holocaust being denied and it might cause them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in Europe, yes, that's the with this argument uh, that the country that forbid Holocaust denial use this uh, idea. Uh, in the United States you cannot justify like this a uh, limit to freedom of speech because the Supreme Court uh, thinks that if you forbid an expression because it harms someone, why does it harm someone? Because of the opinion that is expressed, that's the communicative impact of the expression. So you cannot, if you restrict it, you just restrict one opinion and. I think you all know this famous uh, Skokie case, right? Where this suburb of so Chicago, I think, like where the National Socialist Party of America or something like this uh, wanted to to parade, the city tried to forbid it, saying that it hurted the people, and a lot of the inhabitants of the suburbs were uh, Holocaust survivors, I think. And the tribunal said, "No, of course not. You cannot." Uh, injure, and you cannot forbid an expression because it harmed other people and the Supreme Court did not even accept to review the case it did not grant it ser- 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 what? because it was an easy case from the American so point of you view draw
2: the line and lying would hurt people like let's say you, you lied that you went to a better <coughs> school in order to get a job that would be illegal then but it would be illegal to um, get a better job because you claim that you Went to a certain school, but you get certain benefits because you're from a certain race the and the action. But that that would be illegal.
1: Uh, I, I I don't. After Alvarez, I don't think that would be uh, ruled illegal because it can be seen as a false statement of fact. It can be seen as something that is harmful for some people. But that is typically uh, the kind of matters where forbidding a false statement of fact could deter. Uh, Interesting matters, opinion uh, that are worthy of protection. So I think the court would not agree with, with such a prohibition.
2: Okay, so then there's really no legal disincentive to lie in general. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, uh, <laughs> I think after after Alvarez, no. Uh, for, according to Justice Alito, if you lie, it has uh, uh, really not any importance, and you could forbid any lie. But according to the other judges, six more judges, uh, no, you have to protect lives, not because they have any values, but because if the people are afraid that saying something false will uh, get them fined or will send them to jail, they will just stop talking and the free and inhibited debate will be deterred. you know?
0: I, I don't know... <coughs>
2: studied all the nature of hate crimes laws in the United States, but there are a number of states that have passed them in recent years. And it's interesting to me that someone could say, you dirty Jew, and it's protected by law, but if he says that while pushing you or shoving you, he can be arrested and it can be declared a hate crime because what he said suggests his motivation. So there his speech is enhancing the potential penalty that he pays for the crime but if he has the speech without shoving you or doing anything else illegal to protect you. Yeah. And 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 the, the yeah. Um some countries Canada for example has an anti-hate crime national statute. That's been debated. Uh, what are you what is your opinion of the effect of that the value of that or are there any Echoes
1: elsewhere. About enhancing penalties for uh, for um, I get yeah f- first the first thing is that that's really right what you say that the, the the those statutes say you will be more severely sentenced when your crime was moved by hate but how do you determine if the person had those uh, motivation only with speeches because you cannot. Say otherwise if the person' motives were hateful or not. That's what he says. That matters, and that we have the same thing, the same thing in in France. So what do I think about it? Yeah, I I, I, I'm not really shocked by such statutes, but I know, and that was a surprise for me that when the Supreme Court accepted such laws in in the United States in '93, I think the Mitchell case, I think, I, do, I don't remember. There was a huge debate. There, there was a lot of people saying that's uh, forbidding uh, thought crimes, and that's unacceptable. And okay. That's a good example of the different uh, perceptions we have on this issue in Europe, or in France, and in the US. Yes. Um, what do
0: you think about the concept of um, like, uh, incitement, where someone uses free speech, and then um, Riots happen in the world. People die. Property gets destroyed, and they know it's going to happen by doing that. If you find this, like with the um, you know the anti-Islamic you know the pro- publications against you know the Islamic world, we know it's going to happen from experience. That you go and you write, produce a cartoon about the Prophet Muhammad, you're going to get that. Yeah. What, what do you think about those kind of laws? And,
1: and uh, that's again um, one big point of difference between Europe and the us or maybe United States and the rest of the world on this issue because in Europe those incitement can be prohibited when they tend to provoke some violence but the judge will uh, look at that on a really abstract point of view the p the the words are hateful they are Quite strong words. The judge will say, "Okay, that could lead to violence." In the U.S., now the judge will have to check, really, in the circumstances of the case, will have to to check if the people, if the words, if the 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 utterance, the speech, is really in this context, is really capable of provoking immediately some violence that the famous clear and present danger i mean the danger must be really certain it must be clear and it must be really present it must be it must provoke some violence not in a few weeks when the people looked at the cartoon it must provoke it right now when you say it
0: Please. thanks
2: for pulling all of this together when alvarez was announced several months ago as you probably recall, there was significant media coverage, and I'm wondering. This might fall outside the scope of your work. Have you been able to track how the decision has been digested and discoursed in various stakeholder communities?
1: In in various?
0: It's, let's say the Holocaust denial community in civil Sybil- you know, liberties Sybil- ah. folks, um, minds.
1: Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's Jewish in Jewish
0: organizations, etc. How was that landed?
1: That's. Uh an interesting point I have no idea but uh, it's uh, yeah you're right it would be interesting to know I don't know if uh, they made the, the 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 link if they, they saw that because the case was, was a little bit funny right so people talk uh, a lot about this uh, fun, this strange guy that was uh, saying lies all the time but I don't know if uh, It was seen for what it is for the first time that the Supreme Court talked so explicitly uh, about false statements of facts. Uh, I don't know how it was received, uh, but I will look for that. Thanks. This has been really illuminating and marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. I I, thank you. Can I ask one
0: thing? I cannot imagine Mm -hmm. defending a dissertation in America about the French law. What is the process for your defending the dissertation? Must you have an American who schooled in the American Constitution at your defense? Um, how do you? This is intriguing that you could do this, and this is a university. I have to ask you that question.
1: How do you do that? How How do we defend thesis? How in to defend your dissertation in France regarding American law and constitution? Okay, uh, my my thesis was uh, comparative law, so I I, I, I it's about French law, American law and German law. Okay? And so in the jury I had two French guys and Austrian guys, a German woman and David Raban from Texas University was the American part. Yeah, so they, they I, I was lucky that they could all come to Paris and that my university could pay the tickets from the Texas guys, so it was it was nice. Yeah.
0: And when will
1: you book, Peter? Uh, next year in March, I think. Uh, sadly, in French. But uh, who knows? Maybe I try to. To, but it's not a problem for you. But for the rest of America, I try to well, do it. I think it could be very important. Thank you me. so much. Merci beaucoup. Merci infiniment. Thank you. May,
0: may I just uh, um, let you know that the next. Um, the next talk in this series will take place on November the 14th, and I think that you can find that on the uh, uh, schedule that's there. Again, thank you so much. Thank Come you. Thank, the you much. thank you very much. Thank you.